Thank you, Laura. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me again to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning. Ecclesiastes 9. It's probably been three or four years ago at Christmas time. Uh, we went out to visit my grandma who lived in Ohio at that time. And uh, we spent some time there as a family enjoying time with great grandma as well as my parents, my kids' grandparents, just uh, doing all kinds of Christmas things, enjoying the break from school and work and just enjoying Christmas time. And uh, the day came when it was time to go, and uh, we loaded up in the car, and unbeknownst to the kids, mom and dad had extra plans uh, that we were looking forward to, we were excited about, and we were trying to figure out, like, when do we tell them what's going on? Uh, admittedly now, three or four years later, it would be much harder to pull off what we did then uh, because just the kids are a little more alert and a little more aware. And so, for example, we left grandma's at about three in the afternoon. And if we did that today, I'm pretty confident some of our kids would be going, aren't we going to get home at like one in the morning? Uh, because they'd be doing the math, thinking about the drive, like, why did we leave so late? Uh, but we left late, and instead of going east and a little bit north, uh, we went directly south. And if they were watching the street signs, they would have been going, why are we headed towards Kentucky? Um, this isn't right. But like back then, it was great. Like They didn't have a clue. Uh, they didn't catch on, and we had a nice dinner stop planned, and uh, you know, in the van was their swimming stuff. Uh, it's December. You'd think they'd be going, why did we bring this? Like, it's Christmas time. We went to grandma's house. Uh, but there were lots of signs that if they had picked up on, they would have been like, this isn't right. This is strange. Uh, and we were looking forward to grabbing dinner, going to a hotel, and then going to see the Creation Museum and the Ark, and uh, just spending time together as a family as a surprise to them right at the tail end of Christmas. They enjoyed it. It was a blast. It's one of those fun memories to look back on, uh, but at the time, you know, the questions were the normal car questions, like when are we, are we there yet, when are we going to get there, uh, can we make a stop, all those things. It wasn't, why? Why are we going south, and why did we leave so late, and why are the swimming clothes in the car? Those kinds of things tend to come with a little bit more maturity in years, and again, probably would happen much more frequently if we tried to do that like this year rather than back then. I use that as an illustration coming back to Ecclesiastes because I think sometimes what happens is as we start to walk through life in our perception of self, we might say maturity, although that's probably flawed, we start to look at the details and circumstances of life and go, why? God, I don't understand. I don't like. I'm not sure this is why? And the text in front of us this morning calls us to simply trust God in those details in life. And beyond just trusting Him, as we'll get to the end of our section uh, for this morning, not just to trust Him, but to say, God, and I'm going to enjoy what's in front of me right now. I'm not going to let the questions and the problems and the concerns steal the opportunity to bring you glory and consider it all joy right now. If you think about where Solomon's been in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's been quite some time now we've been in this book, he's talked about, you know, if you try to find meaning in life through selfish pleasure, 
it's empty. However, if you look at life as well and see all the pain that's going around, you'd be like, that seems pointless as well. This world is marked by incredible pain, but if I just try to live it up and go to pleasure, it's empty either way. And Solomon is calling us to lift our eyes beyond the sun, right? Over and over, he said, under the sun, under the sun. If I, if I just look at things from a horizontal perspective, it just seems hard. It seems pointless. It's all vanity, he says over and over. Instead, he calls us to say, you know what? You need to live in fear of God. You need to live with faith in God. It's this idea that you're going to have a life-orienting reverence of God that leads to a life-orienting rest in God. To say, God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to take the life that you've given. I'm going to enjoy you, knowing that one day I will stand before you in judgment. I won't, for sake of time, go through a comprehensive review of those themes of where we've been in several chapters. But let me just call out a couple verses in chapter 7 and chapter 8 as we come into chapter 9. So for example, back in chapter 7, verse 13, he said, Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. God's in control. He knows there are days of, of joyful prosperity. He knows there are days of difficult adversity, but he is worthy of your trust in his sovereignty. In fact, later on in that same chapter, down in verse 18, he says it this way, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this, like grab it, for all, yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Last week in chapter 8, verse 12, he said it this way, though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his day be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 15 and following, he again encourages us to live in joy with the life that God has given, trusting God regardless of what circumstances may hold. So we come back to the text now this morning in chapter 9. We want to see first this morning the necessity of faith. We're going to look at the necessity of faith and then the certainty of death before looking finally at the opportunity of life. The necessity of faith, the certainty of death, and the opportunity of life. As we come to verse 1, you'll notice with me that the necessity of faith is grounded in thoughtful consideration. He begins and says, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare this, and then he goes on to give his declaration. But as you listen to those words, realize this isn't some quick reaction for Solomon. He's focused his thinking, and kind of as a hinge, he says, Looking back, all that I've said and all that I'm about to say leads me to this conclusion. It's a very thoughtful uh, response here from Solomon as he's inspired by God. This necessity of faith is not only grounded in thoughtful consideration, secondly, it is expressed in trusting confessions. It's expressed in trusting confessions. We'll summarize them really simply for ourselves this morning. God knows, we don't. 
God knows we don't. So trust him. Look at what the verse says there at the end of verse 1. The righteous and their wise and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knows either love or hatred by all that is before him. He's like, look, everything is in God's hand. You're trying to do what's right. You're trying to live in the fear of God in wisdom. You're trying to live that out in right works. Like God knows it's in his hand. And so if things are going well, great, praise him. If things are incredibly difficult, they seem unfair, which is where the text has often been lately. It's okay, it's in his hands. Trust him. It doesn't matter, like we looked at last week in chapter 8, if it's like, well, the, the righteous, their life seems cut short, and the wicked, they seem to be living too long. It doesn't matter. It's in God's hands. It's this requirement of faith to go, God, I'm just going to trust you. It's in your control. It's in your hand. And so he simply says, God knows. We don't. Should we seek to live in wisdom? Yes. Should we seek to live in righteousness? Yes. Do those alone lead to satisfying, meaningful life? And we might say, no, if we were trying to do that apart from faith. We say, you know what, as, as I seek to live rightly, make the right decision strategically in wisdom, fearing God, trying to meet his standard, albeit falling short, it requires me saying, God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm not looking for an immediate return. You know, there's a movement in Christianity, that's, particularly in American Christianity today, that's like, well, if I just punch in the right ingredients here, then God will bless me. And Solomon has pushed aggressively against that, saying, life will be marked by difficulty and by joy both. It's in God's control, not yours. God is not some genie, again, where we enter the right combination. He's just going to respond automatically to give you what you want and to make your life the best one there can be right now. You say, no, I'm going to please God by fearing him, by trusting him, whatever comes in life. Reality is, faith is required to live in wisdom. To fear God is going to require faith. Faith is required for righteousness. In fact, again, we can go to Old Testament and New Testament and be reminded that the just live by faith, or the righteous only live by faith. I like the way one writer summarized this section. David Gibson said it this way, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all, know it all, do it all, achieve it all, be happy forever, have all the answers, never be left scratching our head, and be remembered for all time. But the life you have today comes from God's hand as a gift. If we're going to please God, it begins first with the necessity of faith. But secondly, and perhaps painfully, we need to be reminded again of the certainty of death. Solomon's reminded us of this reality a number of times, back in chapter 2 particularly and into chapter 3, and he returns to it now in chapter 9 to remind us that in the future, while we don't know what all will come, as the end of verse 1 said, we don't know if it's going to be love or hate, we can know this, death will come. Apart from New Testament understanding that there will come a day where the rapture occurs, the reality for humanity is death will come. There are two thoughts I want us to see in verses 2 and 3 particularly when we look at the certainty of death. First, death is inevitable. 
it will happen. He says there in verse 2, all things come alike to all. There is one event. That word event speaks of a future happening. Some translations translate it as fate. I, I find that a little bit difficult, at least in my thinking, because it's not like happenstance, like, oh, it's just, it was left to fate, kind of the way we think of it today. But it is speaking of a future happening that will occur. This, this event will happen. This same word was used back in chapter 2, verse 14, and I think even more importantly, in chapter 3, verse 19. Because if there's any question in our mind, that, that the use of the word in chapter 3, verse 19 makes it clear, death is in view. Death will happen. This event is death. In fact, where we left off in our scripture reading, contextually, chapter 9, verse 10 says, you can't keep working when the grave comes. Your ability to work, to do your best, to enjoy what God has given under the sun stops there at death. You're going to be in eternity. And so death is inevitable. It will happen. But secondly, as we look at the end of verse 2 into verse 3, death is not only inevitable. Secondly, death is impartial. Say it this way, it seems unfair. Not only is it inevitable, it will happen. It's impartial. It seems unfair. Solomon here lays out five pairs. They kind of alternate back and forth between those who do right and those who do wrong. And you look again there, he's like, there's the righteous and the wicked. There's the good, clean, and unclean. There's the one that sacrifices. There's the one who sacrifices not. There's the good. There's the sinner. There's the one who swears and gives oath. And there's one who's like, I'm not doing any oath. He's like, he goes through all of these things, and he's like, you know what happens? They all die. Right? You could look today and go, God, I... I tried to do a good thing today. I went to church. I read my Bible. I served in a ministry. God, like, I'm trying to give my life to you, and my life is hard. It doesn't seem right. Solomon's looked around, and he's grappled with it. He's like, you know, it doesn't seem the way that it should. I've, I've looked and seen the righteous die early, chapter 8, and the wicked's life seems to go on. It's that same wrestle of the psalmist as we've talked about often in Psalm 73. So here again, we see Solomon looking and grappling with this idea that this just doesn't seem to matter. It seems unfair and unjust. Again, it's that unique nature of Ecclesiastes where at points we dive into this pessimism, this almost depressing thought from Solomon as he just grapples with the gravity of sin and its presence in this world. A life apart from God seeming absolutely meaningless. And at points, life with God seeming kind of unfair before then pulling himself back out. And we're going to watch that transition take place over the verses that follow. I mean, again, you look at what he says in verse 3. He considers it an evil under the sun that there's one event unto all. Like, this just doesn't seem right. Again, even further. Also, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. We all end up in the same place, he's saying. Now, this is not to discount a future eternity. Let's be very clear. You'll see Solomon's view of life after death when we get to chapter 12. We've touched that before. He knows judgment is coming. He knows there is hope after death. He's not simply saying, well, you know what? Life is over when one dies. He knows there's life after As we continue on in the text here and watch the transition take place, we've moved from the necessity of faith 
to the certainty of death, and now third, to the opportunity of life. The opportunity of life. We could summarize where we've been this way. All of life is in God's hands, verse 1. Death will come, verses 2 and 3. But now you have life to live, in verses 4 through 10. As we look at the opportunity for life, we want to see it first negatively illustrated in verses 4 through 6. We want to look at it first negatively illustrated in verses 4 through 6. We're kind of still in the pessimism of Solomon before lifting into the uh, optimism or his right thinking and right commands in just a moment. Beginning of verse 4 gives us this opening statement. For him, to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. He's like, hey, if you're still alive, there's still hope. The story's still being written. And as we'll see in a moment, you have an opportunity to do right, bring glory to God, and enjoy the life that he's given. Look at his illustration. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Here he takes a despised animal and a prized animal. Maybe a little different than our world today. Uh, we take our pets very, very seriously. A uh, little different in their culture, right? Um, they're not going, how do we buy toys for our dogs? And how do we get treats for our dogs? And how do we make sure, like, very different. In their culture, these are despised scavengers. These are the ones that bring disease with them. And yet he's looking on the other hand going, but here's a lion, an incredible beast that deserves respect, that deserves fear. And he's like, but I can look at this dog that's despised, who's alive, and say very clearly, he has it better than this lion who is dead, even though at one point he was feared. Because this despised animal at least still has life. Whereas the lion at one point was powerful, was respected, his life is now over. And Solomon's point is very simple. There is an opportunity that comes with life. He continues on in verses 5 and 6. He says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. It's like the opportunity for an impact horizontally on this earth is over. Their work for eternity is sealed. If we're a believer, we recognize, and again, I think Solomon will get there when we get to chapter 12, that there's still an opportunity to give glory to God in eternity in heaven forever if we put our faith in Christ from a New Testament perspective. But the opportunity to go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make a difference here, is done. In fact, he rightly says that memory fades over time. You say, well, you know, we live in a world today that can record memory and we can, we can know all these things. And it's like, look, how many times does history get rewritten? And people are like, oh, I don't know if I agree. And I think it might have been like that. And it might have been like this. And everything gets disputed. It all just disappears. Our significance is really not what we sometimes attribute it to, attribute to it. He's saying your opportunity to make a difference is while you are alive, while the story is still being written, not when the memories will be forgotten, not when the accomplishments and possessions are done. But the opportunity is now. Don't waste your opportunity in life. For believers here this morning, I would remind you, call you again to go, God, I want to live with a life-orienting reverence for you. I want to fear you. 
and obey you, knowing that for all these things you will bring me into judgment. I'm going to enjoy the life that you've given while doing those things, because the opportunity is right now. Now, at the same time, I want to maybe broaden this out a little bit biblically and theologically for just a moment. We're being told in the text here that there is a certainty of death. So look at the opportunity of life. Can I remind you there's someone who is very different than us in that regard? God never dies. God never dies. Which is why he is worthy of our fear. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our trust. He is the reason why, in the midst of all of the seeming unfairness and all of the problems, there is still hope. In fact, there's hope beyond death. It is only because of him, right? It is through our faith in God, particularly through our faith in the life of his son, Jesus Christ, who overcame sin on the cross, who overcame the grave and sin in his resurrection, that we have opportunity and hope for the future. I was thinking this week as I was studying of Jesus' words to Martha there at the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 25. They're familiar to many of us, where Jesus said very simply to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. All of us here face the certainty of death if the rapture doesn't occur. So we want to seize the opportunity of life right now, but we do have hope for the future by faith in Jesus Christ. He has overcome death. He has overcome the grave. He has come to bring eternal, everlasting life. Again, I hope you know Jesus Christ as Savior. I, I, while we're in Ecclesiastes, I think we'd miss the point if we didn't at least call to say, you know what, our hope for life after death is only found through Jesus. We need to believe on his death and resurrection to be saved from our sin. I like the way the picture of 1 Corinthians 15 paints it. It, it paints the, the process of dying, but then being raised to life as a seed being planted in the ground, right? You plant that seed in the ground. I'm not much of a farmer. I'm really a bad gardener, okay? But you plant those seeds in the ground, and the seed dies. Why? It brings forth a new plant. It brings forth new life. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, the inspired apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, yes, you will die. There's a certainty of death. It's like that seed being planted. But it does so that life will be brought forth. It's a need for all of us to put our faith in Christ. There is an opportunity of life in the midst of the certainty of death. We've seen that opportunity of life negatively illustrated, but now in the time that remains, we want to look at it joyfully celebrated. Joyfully celebrated. We could say positively instructed, but I think the text even goes beyond that. Say, so what does it look like? If We've seen the illustration. Yeah, it's better to be alive, so I, I might as well just go to work. I, I, I got the routine at home. I, life's in front of me, so I guess I better please God. Solomon says, let me tell you a little bit what it looks like to have hope in this life. And he gives us multiple instructions here in the verses that follow. So let's look at the opportunity for life joyfully celebrated first in simple activities. First in simple activities. We've seen this now at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3, the end of chapter 5, the end of chapter 8. Like This is a pretty familiar theme to you, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. 
But he says, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart. He takes these similar activities that are much like Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you're eating, you're drinking, whatever you're doing, do all to the glory of God. And he says, enjoy these simple, routine things. Don't just take them for granted. But God, you've met my needs. I want to enjoy what you've provided, what you've entrusted me with, and I want to do it with a heart of gratitude and joy. Twice in that short phrase at the beginning of verse 7, we're pointed to our attitude, our perspective. The word joy and the word marry. I wonder if that marked your disposition just walking through the routines of daily life last week. It's like, you know what? My life is different than those around me because God has just been so good that I, even in the simple things, it's marked by joy. It's marked by a cheerful spirit, a merry spirit. Solomon looks at the opportunity of life joyfully celebrated and starts with simple activities. Secondly, he notes that we do this with God's approval. For God now accepteth thy works. You know, when we fear God, when we trust him, we are accepted. The Old Testament, as I alluded to earlier, reminds us that you just live by faith. The New Testament also reminds us that our acceptance is not found by works. It is found by faith. We, we live with a belief in God. We don't earn God's favor by somehow what we do. But once we have God's favor through Jesus Christ, once we believed on him, God says, you are mine. You are accepted. Enjoy the life that he has given to you. Will it be all great and easy and always easy to put a smile on our face? No. Like, that's very much where we've been the last several weeks, in case you need a reminder. Like, he said, life seems unfair. This doesn't seem right. It's marked by pain. But you should seek to count it all joy. You should seek to even enjoy the simple things that God does give, knowing that he's accepted you. I know classes are on different levels. I was asking some of the teachers this last week, like, where are you at in Sunday school and are studying Romans? So some of you are behind, like some of you are way behind, okay? But others of you are a little closer. And next week, like, you're in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the wretched man that you are has been delivered by Jesus Christ, as you heard this morning. Solomon can look and say, enjoy life in the simple things because God accepts what you're doing. From a New Testament perspective, we say we're accepted in Christ. The opportunity of life is joyfully celebrated in simple activities with God's approval. Third, in cheerful attitude. I know this overlaps a little bit, but we'll... Look at this phrase, in cheerful attitude. We perhaps could say in cheerful attire if we wanted to say it that way. But he's, he's giving us a picture here that I don't think so much is a prescription for the activity as much as it is a description for the attitude. Let not thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. If we were to say that maybe in a modern way to help us get the idea, it's like, go ahead and dress up. Do your hair. Enjoy the day. Okay? Someone's like, dress up. So maybe I lost you on that part. Okay? But I want you to imagine living in their day, traveling in down dusty roads, 
not inside your nice temperature-controlled car, in white. That's not an everyday experience, right? I mean, just imagine like when you put the white tablecloth out at home. That's not an everyday experience, like unless it's one of those vinyl ones that you can wipe off and everything's good after the fact. Like white gets dirty. It's hard to get clean. If I wear my dress shirt and work on the car, I'm in trouble with Melinda. In their dirty society, the dust of the day, he's saying, hey, look, put on that which you use for celebration. Get yourself ready. Have an ha- attitude that rejoices in what God has given. I think that's the point that he's driving at. And again, in life, there are challenges. He's touched those significantly. He's just reminded us of the reality of death. But now he's saying, you need to be ready to celebrate. You need to be ready to have joy. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of difficulty, there is a propensity in our sinfulness to be an Eeyore. It's going to rain today. It's just a bad day. Life's hard. It's never good. Right? And some in the room have a bigger propensity to that than others. But God is good. You have life. It's life he's given, and while you have life, there is hope. So enjoy the life that he's given. Don't be in your, right? Mystery and uncertainty and difficulty don't have to steal your joy. Life is an opportunity to give glory to God by fearing him, trusting him, and enjoying what he's given. There's an opportunity of life joyfully celebrated in simple activities with God's approval in cheerful attitude. Fourth, with marital affection. With marital affection. For those who are married in the room, for those maybe who want to be married in the room, listen to what the verse says. Grab it. Like this is from God through Solomon to us. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. Okay? He did not say, live joyfully with your fiance. Like many are really good at that. And that's why they go to the altar and they exchange vows and they get married. Because it's like, man, we're excited. We're getting married. This is great. He did not just say, live joyfully with your newlywed spouse. It's very broad in what he says here. It doesn't matter if you've been married five minutes or 60 years. I think the instruction still applies for all of us that are married to go, live joyfully with your spouse. This is what God has given. The language here for live joyfully is both attitudinal and even more so experiential. In fact, a number of translations uh, point out that experiential side of living. In other words, it's the idea of do life together. You don't need to live separately. Like, go do things together. Enjoy things together in what God has given you. Again, it's very common for couples to go, you know what, we we just like doing stuff together early on. And then work gets in the way, hobbies get in the way, kids get in the way, selfishness gets in the way, and we live our separate lives. Don't do that. It's, it's that couple who hits 55 years of age. Kids are out of the house. They look at each other like, who are you? 
we haven't done anything in a long time. And they're not even sure they like each other anymore. They've missed out on what Solomon says here. Don't get to that point with regrets. Take advantage of the opportunity of life with marital affection to live joyfully with the wife that God has given to you. Again, I would note for you, he does not say, live joyfully with your children. I hope you do. Like That's great if that happens, but I actually can't give you a Bible verse that tells you that. I can give you Bible verses that say children are a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward. Like they are God's gift, I understand that. But he points to something, not just here, but in multiple texts that is more foundational and primary. Right? You need to be, if God's given you children, whether your children are in the house or out of the house, you need to be that couple where your kids still roll their eyes at you and go, Dad loves mom. I'm glad they know. Be that person where it's like they clearly know whether they are kids, whether they are grandkids, whether they're young, whether they're old. They're like, you're secondary. Mom's primary. Dad's primary. Because he says live joyfully with your wife. That's what God has given to you. I would remind you, even in the phrase that follows, marriage is God's gift. It says, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. The opportunity for marriage is limited. Like, that's one of those things I hope is a little bittersweet for you. Where you're like, man, we're not married in heaven? Because you're like, well, but God's more important, and he is. But marriage lasts during life, that's it. It's temporary. It's fleeting. He says, God's given it to you under the sun. It is a gift from him, right? We've talked about Proverbs 18, 22. It is God's good favor to man. It is that which completes Genesis chapter 2. So rather than complaining, rather than focusing on your job or kids, like, enjoy the life God has given you, knowing marriage is God's gift. Secondly, life is brief. He says, for that is thy portion in thy, this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Maybe one other thought by way of application. What's the last thing you enjoyed with your spouse? Or maybe another way to say it is like, look back last week. What did you enjoy with your spouse? Like, what was great? Like, maybe it was a simple thing. Like, as I was reviewing notes this morning, there was a conversation one and I were having late last night. One of us made a mistake. We'll tell you who that was. Um, and we were just cracking up about it. Like, Came, that was like a big mistake. And we're just laughing. Like, that's good. Like, I'd tell you, you're like, I can't believe you did that. That's stupid. But we laugh. Like, it's okay. What, what did you enjoy with your spouse? Grumpy married people aren't much fun to be around. And I don't think they picture well Christ's relationship to the church. Part of his instruction the opportunity of life joyfully celebrated is to live with marital affection. Yes, it's joyfully celebrated in simple activities with God's approval, in cheerful attitude, with marital affection. Finally, in every action. For those like, man, I'm glad we're getting off the marriage stuff. Okay, listen, this is for all of us. Okay? In every 
action. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do. Like anything. Whatever comes your way, do it with all your might. Because the opportunity is now. There is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. It's a modern way to say, whither thou goest, right? Your time on earth is limited. My time on earth is limited. Death is certain. Enjoy the life that he's given. But whatever your hand comes up to do, it doesn't matter if you're a student doing homework, which is where we often apply the verse, and that's good, or cleaning your room. Or you're an adult going to work. Or mom folding the laundry. Or coming to church and finding an opportunity to serve and to minister. To go, you know what, God, whatever you do, whatever you put in front of me, in your sovereign plan for my life, I want to do the best that I can for your glory. So that life, the opportunity of life, can be joyfully celebrated in every activity. When we fear God, we orient all of life around him. And when the questions come up where it's like, man, that seems difficult. That seems hard. I don't understand. To go, God, I'm going to trust you. It's all in your hand. And as I look at the necessity of faith, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity of life, knowing there's a certainty of death. God, I'm going to live for your glory now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text. It's simple clarity for us. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, meet needs in each believer's heart, whereby we would trust you. Lord, I don't know what circumstances each person is facing, but we know from your word, even today, that they're in your hand. That then, Lord, we would seek to take advantage of life now to please you, to do it with joy in the different relationships that you've given in our marriages, in every activity. Lord, that you might be glorified, you might be pleased. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.